The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight, we're turning to God's Word and we're continuing in an Advent series that's really asking the question, who is this baby that was born in the manger that we're celebrating at Christmas? Two Sundays ago, Pastor Kiefer looked at Christ, the preeminent one, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, who's before all things and in whom all things hold together. Then last week, Dr. Light looked at at Jesus and the reason he was born. He was born in order to humble himself, even to the point of death, that he might die in our place, and then, of course, be exalted again to the name that is above every name, so that every tongue will confess him as Christ the Lord. Tonight, then, we're turning to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, where we'll see that Jesus is himself the very Son of God who reveals for us the glory of God. Tonight we're going to read 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, and since we're jumping into the middle of a chapter here, let me just give a brief comment on the context of what we're reading. Peter has just finished reminding the believers who are reading his letter of the truths that they already know. He's reminded them that in Christ, God has granted to us very great and precious promises so that we might escape the corruption that's in the world because of sin and our sinful desires, and instead, through Christ, become partakers of the divine nature. Peter then urged these believers to make every effort to confirm their calling and their election, so that they might have an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when he returns. But it seems that Peter was very eager to remind his readers of these truths. Perhaps some maybe were beginning to doubt whether Christ would actually return in glory. After all, yes, Jesus was a real man. He came, he died, and he rose, and the apostles testified to those things. But when Peter's writing, it's been years. It's been, it's been decades since Jesus was on earth And we haven't seen any sign of a glorious return or an eternal heavenly kingdom. Life seems to be going on at a pretty normal daily routine and and daily pace. And so Peter seems to be eager to remind his readers of the things that they know and to give them solid ground and proof that they might know who Christ is and be assured that he is going to return in power and in glory. So that's the context of what we're reading tonight. Follow with me, if you would, just verses 16 through 21, 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved Son, 
with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these words that you spoke as Peter was carried along by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your Spirit would continue to use these words in our hearts and our lives tonight to give us a sure confidence in Christ our Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Now, in life, we all experience from time to time certain moments that seem to fully explain things that we weren't really confident that we understood up to that point. Maybe there's a series of events that we're not sure we really grasp what's going on, or maybe others are interacting in ways that we're not really sure why they're interacting in that way. When something is said or something happens that that pulls back the curtain, if you will, and suddenly enables us to understand a situation we did not understand before. This happened in our house uh, this past week. In fact, I have been shopping for over a month, hoping to surprise my wife with a new bike for Christmas. And uh, don't worry, I'm not uh, unveiling the surprise in a Sunday evening sermon. This week, uh, having finally found the bike that I wanted, got it on Monday, and on Tuesday, Tia said to Kate, we hid your bike at Aunt Katie's house. And so in one moment, several furtive trips that we all, or that I took with some of the kids were suddenly explained. The mystery was gone. The curtain was pulled back. No more surprise. And there are moments like this that sort of pull back the curtain and reveal things that are more significant than that. And I suppose that for the disciples, walking with Jesus must have been sort of a daily or hourly pull back the curtain and understand things that I had not understood before type of experience. But there's one moment that stands out in the life of Jesus. One moment when, if you will, the curtain is pulled back and the true nature of Jesus and his his true and coming power and glory are revealed and are on display in a way that the disciples had not fathomed before. And that moment, as you may remember, was on the Mount of Transfiguration. A number of the Gospels relate this moment. When Jesus took Peter and James and John up on a mountain, and while they were there, suddenly Jesus was transfigured before him. He was shining in the dazzling brightness of his glory, radiant and intensely white like no bleach could achieve the Gospels say, with Moses and Elijah next to him, when the voice of God himself declared, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And it's this moment that Peter is largely reflecting on or looking back on in tonight's passage. You know, at Christmas, we remember Jesus, we remember the Jesus born as a baby. 
And the emphasis at Christmas, rightly so, is on the humanity that Jesus takes on. That Jesus would set aside His divinity, not setting it aside, but veiling it in order to take on a human body. But tonight, as we think about this Jesus and remember who this baby was, we want to remember that Christ, even as He was human, even as He was born as a baby, was still very God, the beloved Son of the Father. And so to Him belong majesty and glory and honor and power that will be revealed again when Christ appears a second time. In this passage, Peter is using both his eyewitness experience as well as the authority of Scripture to assure his readers of the things that they know and the coming again of Jesus in power and glory. And I want to look at each of those, their eyewitness experience and then the authority of Scripture in this passage. First, look at the eyewitness account. This is in verses 16 through 18. And Peter begins by reminding believers that when the disciples of Jesus proclaim that Jesus is come again in power and glory, they are not basing this declaration on on a cleverly devised story. They're not basing this on on a myth that the disciples have sort of crafted to try to give people a picture of how awesome Jesus is. That's what myths are. They're stories that are not necessarily true, but they're trying to encapsulate who someone is or communicate something about a person, even though it's not accurate. And Peter says, no, that's not what we're doing. We're not telling you stories about Jesus just to try to communicate, hey, Jesus was really great. No, this is not a story or a myth. We actually saw Jesus coming power and glory. We were actually eyewitnesses of his majesty. At the moment when Jesus was transfigured before Peter and James and John, at that moment, the disciples got a brief but real and accurate sneak peek at the true majesty of Jesus. They got a sneak peek at the power and glory that everyone will see when Jesus returns again at the end of history. I'm not sure, thinking of Christmas and continuing with the Christmas theme, if you, when you were young, ever had powwows with your siblings leading up to Christmas, and you would sort of discuss what presents you thought you were going to open on Christmas morning, and maybe, maybe you thought you had seen something tucked away in your mom's closet, or maybe they were already wrapped under the tree, and you'd sort of be discussing this when one of the siblings would say, well, Chris... I actually know what you're getting on Christmas morning because I saw it. And that was sort of the definitive proof of what was about to come when you woke up on Christmas morning. Well, I think Peter's saying something similar. He's saying this whole talk of Jesus' return isn't hypothetical because we saw Jesus coming power in glory. We know who Jesus is and how he's going to be revealed because God gave us a glimpse of that on the mountain. And so you can be assured of what you have heard. The eternal kingdom of Christ is true and he will come in all his power and glory. Look, as we look at verses 16 and 17, Peter begins to describe this Jesus, this Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas and that he got a sneak peek at. He describes some of his qualities. First, Peter tells us that Jesus will return in power. He says, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. 
You know, when we uh, look at this word, the word coming here is a word that is only used in the New Testament to return to Jesus' second coming. So when we talk about Jesus' first birth, this word coming is not used to talk about the initial incarnation. It's always used to talk about his coming, his coming again, his second coming. So we know Peter is talking about Jesus at his coming again, and he will come in power. When we typically think of a baby, and this is emphasized a lot at Christmas, probably the the one word that encapsulates what it means to be an infant is helplessness. If you've held a newborn baby recently, you can think of this when you hold this infant in your hand and you think, there is nothing that this baby can do for itself. It is completely helpless. It is completely dependent. In fact, I was struck as I thought about this holding an infant that this newborn baby can't even hold its own head up. A newborn baby even needs another human being to hold its head up or it would risk significant injury. That's the level of helplessness, the utter powerlessness of a newborn baby. But at Christmas, we're not celebrating just any newborn baby. We're celebrating a newborn baby. Jesus, yes, who came, on, who came as a baby, he came and took on this, this powerlessness as a man. He voluntarily took on utter powerlessness so that he could live, die, rise, ascend, and then come again in power. In fact, I think we could say that the joy of Christmas is bound up in this very paradox. Jesus took on powerlessness, utter helplessness, so that he could come again in full power to save those who are waiting for him. When we look at Christmas, we see a baby, but one who is coming again in power. You know, Pastor Kiefer this morning asked us if any of us are sleeping through this Christmas season. If any of us would be going through this Christmas season not really thinking about or being struck by the fact that the the announcement of Gabriel, that the news of Christ being born is the most earth-shattering announcement that we could hear. And I so appreciated how Pastor Kiefer called us to remember what we are celebrating But as I think about this text, I I can't help but think that one of the biggest reasons that we might sleep through Christmas is that we slip into thinking about Jesus' birth simply as a past event that has already happened. We slip into thinking that we've already experienced all the joy that Christmas could have brought us. We know that Jesus was born. We know that he died for our salvation. But here in 2019, as we celebrate another Christmas— we still find that the routine of our lives is repetitive, mundane. Perhaps we feel like we're just going through the routines of life. Or maybe we find that our daily routines are painful, full of anxiety or grief. We're crowded by loss, and our anticipation is of difficulty. But the promise of Christmas is not a hope that has already been completed. The promise and hope of Christmas is that the baby in the manger is giving us another hope that we're still looking forward to. The fullness of the hope that the baby Jesus came to bring to us is still ahead of us. That's His coming again in power. His return to bring the full fulfillment of what He came to accomplish. See, the energy of our Christmas joy springs from the fact that Christ's first coming 
was the beginning of God's great story of salvation, but we're still waiting for the fullness of it. We're still waiting to inherit this salvation when Christ returns with power to bring saved sinners into his eternal kingdom. And that's a hope that's still worth anticipating, that's still worth celebrating, that's still worth clinging to and rejoicing in with all of our hearts. Jesus is coming in power. That's the first thing Peter tells us about Jesus in this passage. Second, going into verse 17, we see that he, Jesus uh, is bestowed with honor and glory from his Father. Peter tells us he received honor and glory from God the Father. Honor and glory are words that are used to describe Jesus elsewhere in Scripture as well. We just finished a a series through the book of Hebrews, and you may remember in Hebrews chapter 2 that the author said, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. These words are paired about Jesus. And one commentator, I think, helpfully breaks down these two words, and he describes honor as the recognition or respect that a person has or deserves, either because of something they've accomplished or because of the position that they have. A man or a woman may be honored for their contributions to science or may be honored for their achievements in sports. A lot of times uh, the, the the winning team of a championship or a Super Bowl will be brought to the White House and honored for their accomplishments. They're receiving recognition for what they've accomplished. Other times, though, honor is given not for an accomplishment, but because of a position that someone has. Maybe some of you are watching The Crown on Netflix right now, and you know that the the king of England or the queen of England or the prince of Wales is honored, not because of something they've accomplished, but because of a position they hold. And you know, if you've watched the series, that the queen takes that position very seriously. We have this position. We receive honor for it. Well, here Jesus receives honor. He receives recognition from God the Father when God publicly declares who He is. God speaks and declares, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus receives honor. And of course, one day He will receive this honor before every person when every knee bows before His name, the most honored name in heaven above or on earth beneath. Glory, on the other hand, is an attribute or a quality that belongs particularly to God. So honor is the recognition given for someone for their accomplishment or position. Glory is an attribute or quality that belongs to God and is shared by Jesus. Theologian Mark Jones, in fact, says that God's glory is not just one attribute, But when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about the sum of all of His attributes. When we say that God shows who He is, when we see God in His essence or the sum of all of who God is, that is His glory. Puritan Thomas Watson said that God's glory is the sparkling of the deity, the visible splendor and the essence of God. Excuse me, the visible splendor of the essence of God. And so here the Father on the mountaintop reveals this glory that the Son shares with the Father. In that moment before Peter and James and John, this glory, this attribute of God, the sum of all of who God is that breaks forth in dazzling splendor, we get a glimpse of that on the mountain. And so the Father gives honor and glory to Jesus in that moment on the mountain. 
This is Jesus to whom belong honor and glory. So Jesus is coming in power. To Jesus belongs honor and glory. Finally, Peter relates the words that God spoke on the mountain and reveals that Jesus is himself God, the beloved Son of the Father. And that, of course, is the root of all of Jesus' honor and power and glory. When Peter, James, and John saw Jesus revealed there on the mountaintop, they saw Him in power and honor and glory because they saw Him revealed as the Son of the Father. They witnessed who He is. Very God of very God. Beloved Son of the Father. So when God the Father says, this is my beloved Son, He is revealing who Jesus is and the root and source of all of Jesus' power and glory and honor. I imagine John, another of the apostles who was there at the Mount of Transfiguration, I imagine that perhaps he had this moment in mind when he wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on and says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. No one has ever seen God, John writes. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Here we have Jesus, the very Son of the Father, the only God who is at the Father's side. And these apostles beheld His glory. Here we have the full mystery of Christmas. Jesus, that little baby, is Himself God the only Son from the Father, come to make God's glory known by living, dying, rising, and soon coming again in all of His power to save whoever will put their trust in Him. This is the God we celebrate at Christmas. And all this Peter witnessed firsthand in the glimpse that he had on the mountain. And there might be some, particularly in our day, who would say, wow, Peter experienced that. He saw that firsthand. That must have been the highest assurance and confirmation that Peter could have had of who Jesus is. But Peter says, no, we have something even more reliable than our personal experience. Or maybe there's others who would say, well, this is Peter's eyewitness account, but what good is Peter's eyewitness account to me? I didn't see it. Maybe he was exaggerating. I'm not going to see it unless I, I, or I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. Maybe this is a, a shout out to the doubting Thomases of the world who will only believe if they can see and touch for themselves. But Peter says, no, we don't have to rely just on eyewitness testimony. We have another more reliable testimony that is available to all of us. Because in addition to Peter's eyewitness experience, we have the prophetic word of Scripture, which is a more sure testimony of the truth of Jesus coming again. And I have to make a quick note about uh, the text here. The ESV, if you're looking at the ESV, translates this phrase in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And there's a bit of a, there's a, bit of a debate between scholars here, and some want to translate this or interpret this uh, as saying that Peter's eyewitness experience 
was more reliable than Scripture or at least added extra confirmation to Scripture. In other words, we had Scripture and we knew it was true, but when Peter saw what he saw, that that was even more reliable. And so they're saying that apostolic testimony adds extra assurance to Scripture. But I think that's 180 degrees wrong. I think the Greek words here in in the context are, are emphasizing the reliability of Scripture over everything else. In other words, we have the eyewitness account, yes, but we have something even more sure, the prophetic word of Scripture. See, throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly made promises and prophecies foretelling the great day of the Lord, when He would come in glory as a Savior of His people. And we don't have time tonight to review all of the ways that the Old Testament foretells the coming of a Savior in glory, because there are passages after passages where God foretold the coming of a Savior, but maybe I'll just mention two to sort of whet our appetites of what God had promised in this prophetic word. We might consider the words of Isaiah 59, where God says, "...the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice." He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And then he continues, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Or maybe we think of Isaiah 66, verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations in tongues, and they shall come, and they shall see my glory. Again and again, these are just two instances where the Lord promises a great day when all people shall see His glory. They shall see a Redeemer coming who reveals who He is at the great day of the Lord. Peter is saying that until that day dawns, God's Word is the light that shines in darkness, the thing that we should pay attention to first of all, because it is our most firm guarantee of the truth of the glory of Christ and His return and power. And these are precious verses about the reliability of God's Word. You know, in our day and age, there's so much we could say and need to say about the reliability of God's Word that these verses speak to, and we don't have time to do so tonight. But for tonight, let's remind ourselves of the main point that Peter is making. No prophecy of Scripture comes about from man's interpretation or from the will of a person. The Old Testament is not Moses' impression of God. The Old Testament is not Jeremiah's interpretation of who God is in the 6th century BC. Those are both true things that people have actually said about the Old Testament. That's not what God's Word is. No, but every prophecy was spoken not from man's will or man's understanding, but as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that Scripture is words from God Himself. If God Himself, then, has told us that the day of Christ's return in power and glory is coming, that is our greatest guarantee of the truths that the apostles have been teaching. That is our greatest guarantee that Christ will return in glory. And so here, Peter has given us the apostles' testimony of their eyewitness experience. We saw the glory of Jesus. 
but also the words of Scripture. The more sure, the more reliable prophetic word. Both of which confirm and guarantee to us the hope that we have. The hope of salvation in Christ when he returns again. If we could finish by just taking a step back for a minute and hear what Peter is saying. Peter's writing to confirm the truth of Jesus' coming kingdom in the face of some whose daily experience and routine of life left them needing reminders of what had been promised, left them doubting or wondering, would Jesus really come again in power? And while most of us know these truths and would not deny them, we are regularly in danger of forgetting them or losing sight of them. You know, all of us know all too well that our living room, if left to itself, just gets messier. It doesn't keep itself clean. Our house falls into disrepair unless we continually maintain it. And in the same way, our hearts so naturally focus on this world and get distracted by the things of this world unless we are regularly and actively reminded of the truths of Scripture and the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter's doing here. Right before the verses we read tonight, Peter said in verses I have to think he said with a smile on his face, he said, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. You can almost hear the people Peter's writing to saying, oh, well, Peter, yes, you've told us this before. We've heard this from you before. And Peter's saying, and I'm going to keep telling you because I intend to continue to stir you up by way of reminder and always remind you of these things. And that's just what we need, isn't it? We need God's Word and the testimony of the apostles to remind us and refocus us and recall us to the truth that is our hope and our comfort and our joy. Christ is coming again in power and great glory. Maybe we need this reminder this Christmas in the face of materialism that dominates Christmas. We need the reminder that Christmas is not the joy of material gifts given and received. Christmas is about the hope that draws our eyes above this world to a solid hope of an eternal kingdom that was given to us in the baby we are remembering. Maybe we need this reminder in the face of our griefs and pains and losses that fill this Christmas season. Christmas season is the time that we most acutely feel the loss of loved ones or feel the sorrow and the sufferings that hit us in this world. And in the face of loss and suffering, we don't need a distraction from the hurts of this world. We need a promise of solid hope that can comfort us in our hearts and give us an expectation of joy and restoration and the wiping away of every tear and every sorrow and every suffering. And that is just the promise we have at the coming again of Jesus Christ. Or maybe we come to this Christmas season and we just feel like we know all this. We just feel like there's nothing specific I need to be comforted in or refocus now. But what God's Word is offering us here is a confirmation, a solidifying, a remindering of what we know to be true so that the apostles' eyewitness testimony and the words of Scripture become the solid promises of hope. And that is exactly what our hearts need in the coming weeks.
So in the end, here it is. The baby born in a manger. Not just a reason to look back at God's gift of love. The baby in the manger is a reason to look ahead to the power and glory of the God-man who is coming again and to the entrance into his eternal kingdom that's provided for those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus. Christ's coming in power and glory is the culmination of Christmas. Christ's coming in power and glory is the great hope of Christmas. And as Peter has doubly assured us in this passage, it's a hope that is very firmly guaranteed, one we can stake our lives on year in and year out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christmas, and we thank you that it comes around every year so that we would not forget that you sent your son as a baby to die and rise again for our salvation. But I thank you that we are not just looking back. We are your people who are looking ahead, knowing that this baby is coming again in power, that this baby received honor and glory because he is the very Son of God. We look forward to this hope, and that is the true energy of all of our joy this Christmas. Would you stir this hope in us? Would you comfort us with this promise? We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.